Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In this edition of Joining the Dots, I sit down with writer and journalist Gary Young. Gary Young was Guardian's North America correspondent, all the way from Hurricane Katrina to the advent of Trump. Also had a regular column in the paper for years. And as such, he documented and commented upon some of the most tempestuous times of his own and that other country, America. We sat down at the back end of London lockdown um, just after he's taken up his post as Professor of Sociology at Manchester University. A new chapter, a third act, and uh, a new experience for, for Gary. And we sit down and talk about the hope he sees on the horizon, how the craft of journalism has changed over the 25, 30 years that he's been practising it what gets him up in the mornings. My name's Mike Fordham, founding editor of Huck, and this is Joining the Dots, the podcast where we meet the creators, the artists, the writers, the activists paddling against the flow, creating culture in their own image. Thanks for listening to Joining the Dots. Make sure to subscribe. Leave a comment and share. Go to huckmag.com for stories of people paddling against the flow. Well, looking at your work, I, I mean, I've I've read particularly your Guardian columns over the years. And I've read other bits and pieces, and I've followed followed what you do, particularly in America, over the last few years. Mm. Um, and what strikes me, and what, what what I feel like puts has always put your work separate and and made your work distinct from a lot of other, say, like political journalists, polemicists, columnists. And I was trying to come up with it, and I'm not even sure if it, I, I ever pronounce this word right, but there's an elegiac quality to it. There's something. Um, wistful uh, sense of being conscious of eras coming and going and, and, and fading away and new things arising with a sort of quantum of sadness or of something there I wonder what you think of that and why is that if it's true well it's interesting I, um, if that's true it's not conscious I guess if you if think of the time in which I've been writing there would be plenty to be wistful about we find ourselves in this moment where one way of life is passing and a new sustainable way of life has not yet come into being. And so I guess there is something to be wistful about there, you know, the kind of not that not I'm certainly not wistful for all of the terrible things that happen, but I have grown up during a period where uncertainty was kind of built in to um into more people's lives there were always you know if you were poor life was always uncertain um but there were when i was growing up there were still the certainties of the post-war consensus you get a pension you get the dole you'd um your education if you got 
have a good enough education, go to university, it wouldn't cost you any money. There were there were a certain set of certainties and they've, they've, a lot of them are gone. And so I don't feel wistful, but I'm sure there is some of that in, um, uh, you know, in, in, in my world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's 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 certainly true. And I think it's. Um, I mean, I think we were born around the same time, actually. And, and I know for myself. I'm fifty-one. Uh, pardon? I'm fifty-one. Me too. How? Me how too. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Um, actually, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm actually fifty-two. I even forget. I'm at that stage. Yeah. I, I was born in January '68. So you're, I guess, you're a year. I'm exactly a year. I was born in January '69. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. I mean, I think when I started out as a working class person, not, not really knowing, there was no path for me to be doing what I do. Uh, and it, it, I, I kind of ended up by default doing it because I, I had this idea of being a writer and I didn't know what that meant. And then it just so happened that when I started trying to do it at the end of the 80s, the early 90s, there was a bit of a publishing boom, right? And so there was opportunities. There was a sort of a, a, democrat, a brief dem democratisation of the media, I think, um, where I, there was a sort of an independent publishing boom of which we're still part actually at Huck and Little White Lives and what we do um, but then I think it's quickly rolled back that really and obviously from from the time that we started I mean you started particularly I mean this is about you really not me um, the, the landscape of what we do and what it means to be a journalist what it means to be a writer what it means to be a commentator has of course transformed out of all recognition hasn't it yeah I mean first of all because everybody has the means to publish, and by that I mean even Twitter or, you know, blogs or Facebook or whatever, there was something good about that, actually, in, in so far as it, that thing where journalists would just do a cuttings job or would just kind of, um, you know, rewrite what other people have done or, you know, that became harder, still do it, but it became harder. When I started doing a column, even in 1999, <clears throat> you still had to put a stamp on a letter and send it if you wanted to respond. Whereas now you can just flick one off, you know, on social media, you got that wrong, you're crap, whatever, you're kind of, so you are much closer to your audience. And then, because everybody can publish, then I think you have to now make the case for what, what value are you adding now? Is it just that you have a megaphone and you can talk? Because now everyone's got a little megaphone and they can talk. So, um, you know, it, it, you have to bring something, you have to bring more to it than just your presence and your megaphone. You have to, maybe you've read something or you've studied something or you've just thought hard about it in a way that other people don't have time to, or whatever it is, you have to kind of, a journalist nowadays has to, should be making the proposition that kind of, well, I, I, I offer this to you because in some way it's something you couldn't do yourself. Now, I've got carpenters in the house at the moment. I'm completely hopeless with my hands. But, you know, maybe I could learn carpentry and I could make some shelves. But that means that the people upstairs have to make much better shelves than I could make. They have to bring something to it. Even if you can, yeah, you've, you've got command of the English language, you've got a capacity to publish. But they, you know, what I'm paying them for, what I want them for is, first of all, the time, because I, I don't have time, but more than that, the skill. And you can't always put a finger on that, but you know it when you see it. Exactly, yeah. And tell me, I mean, going back to that elegy thing and linking back up to what you're doing, I mean, I read um, yesterday your last column for The Guardian. I mean, obviously, that really was did feel like an elegy, and I think that actually that yeah. kind of brought that thing together for me. I wonder, and it was quite moving. You're talking about your mother, the, the things she taught you, that kind of the, um, the, the 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 sort of sense of unity with others that she had and passed on to you. Um, that 
did does and did feel like it's certainly disappearing in the last in this particularly this last period where politics division motored and caffeinated i think as you say by the media uh, by the new media the social media has accelerated that sense of division and, and divisiveness um was your decision to stop being a columnist informed by that backdrop not really no there was <clears throat> i've been a, i've been at the guardian for 26 27 years 27 years yeah, well. um i've been doing a column on and off since 1999 there are actually only so many things you can have an opinion about um obviously new things come up and you apply you know your opinions to those things um there's a bit of me, this is about my age, I think, that, well, it must be, because <laughs> I would have thought it's 20 years ago. I thought, do, do I want to die here? Or is there another act that, you know, just something else I want to do? <clears throat> and I think it's quite, throughout my journalistic career, I've been able to find different ways to make myself vulnerable which is good to have to, to be in a space where, where I don't really know how to do this. I'm going to have to work it out. I might make mistakes. That's, I think, what keeps people fresh and going. And, um, you know, and within that, there has to be the scope for failure. And <clears throat> um, I felt that academia would, first of all, give me a chance to spend longer on a thought than just that beat, you know, if you look at the pieces, most of the pieces that I've written since I've left, they're generally, you know, hitting around the 3,000 word mark or more, just a chance to just develop a thought just a bit further, and, and also just to follow some interests that may or may not have immediate one of the things that always bugged me about journalism, daily journalism certainly, was the notion of what well, we want it now. What are you going to say now? And say, well, when when and I get it, but there will be times like I don't have anything to say now because I'm looking, and I need the time to look in order to find out what I'm going to say, you know, or the kind of thing where they send you go to Grenfell Towers and find this story you know rather than go to the Grenfell Towers and see what the story is do you know what I mean see what people are saying so you're kind of often led by a conclusion that hasn't been tested so you see so you so you find what you're looking for and then you produce it and um, I wanted the luxury of being more open than that being more exploratory than that and so kind of um you know there's things i really don't miss about j journalism not least the kind of some of the toxicity um around you know people there's a lot of performance there's a lot of grandstanding there's a lot of acting out particularly within the commentariat, and I, I, I can't be doing with it really. So it was nice to just kind of withdraw. And, and um, how is that vulnerable feeling, being a sociology professor? It's awesome. It's really nice to be given a task, a talk or a project or whatever it is, and to think, you know, because I know, I know the weight of journalism, you know, I've done it for a long time. I know how it works. I know, uh, yeah, that that work. Um, you know, for uh, a column, I know how deep you have to go. I don't know that in academia. So <clears throat> yesterday, I sat in on a colleague's seminar. I was just saying, okay, so he's doing it like that. So he's kind of, you know, he, he's starting there and he's kind of building this out and he's. Drawn these man he was talking about music. I didn't know the details of what he was talking about, but I could follow his argument. And, you know, thinking, I don't know if I could do that. I wonder how you do that. I kind of um 
uh, in its crudest sense, thinking, I'm not sure I know enough to say that. You know, I'm working with people who've been ploughing this land for 20, 30 years. You know, they've done their Durkheim and their, you know, Stuart Hall, Walter Wall and all that kind of stuff. And I've been um, a bit more flighty because journalism is a bit more flighty. And so it's really good in different ways to feel out of your depth. And, you know, to, you've got to swim a bit harder. It's good for you. Yeah, and, and I guess it sounds like to the way that you analyse the seminar there, that the craft aspect of, of writing has been very important to you and constructing a, a journalistic piece. And you're actually still fascinated in that formal aspect of, you know, how do you construct an argument, a seminar, a lecture? I can see how, how the journalistic skill is being adapted. So you're, you're still interested in that craft aspect. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in <clears throat> making arguments, making cases, building images, introducing facts, uh, excavating experiences so it's you know it's not um it's not a rupture going into academia it is a kind of there is a logical development from uh from what i was doing but sort of stylistically performatively and in terms of body of work of course i start at the bottom i've been an academic you know so someone <clears throat> who's been who's 28 and done their PhD in all sorts of ways will speak this language more fluently and will know the weight of things and so on so and there's nothing worse I would say physically and um, <laughs> almost um, uh, physically and socially I might be a bit lazy but there's nothing worse for me than kind of people who occupy the intellectual sphere in a lazy way who kind of think, well, you know, I've written my books, I've got my name, so then you've got to come and watch me talk, and I don't really have to try. I think it's kind of contemptuous that if this is the field that you've chosen, then you, you got to, you got to graft at it mm. um, and find ways. And if I'd stayed in journalism, you find ways to kind of um, to cut up your game. Mm. And so, yeah, um, it sounds like you, you probably bring a real workman-like attitude that comes from that journalistic, that rigour and that kind of, those daily deadlines that you're used to. It must be, uh, I, bet, I bet the kids must love it, though, compared to some of the, I mean, I remember, you know, I mean, I, I really enjoyed my time in, in academia. And I, every now and then I flirt with going back and doing a PhD and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, and I've noticed, I mean, a lot of the, the, the criticism levelled at, at the ivory tower is just that, right? That it's just, everyone's, they're very self-satisfied. I was wondering if kind of the market forces <laughs> that have been opened up in academia, do you think that's changed the atmosphere within those ivory towers? I'm going to be honest with you. I started a week after lockdown. I haven't even been to Manchester yet. Wow. Uh, I haven't met any of the students yet, apart from online. So I'm not equipped to really. I can see that it's changed. I can see. I, I can see that before that. Well, just the transition of students from students to consumers, to the people who are paying money and kind of, you know, the the attitude I knew, you know. So there's a there's a bunch of it that I could see, and I did a lot of them, um, or not a lot, but. I would often be invited onto the picket line at Goldsmiths, which is not far from me, um, with the UCU. So I have a sense of it, but I haven't really experienced it, to, to be honest. I wouldn't want to run my mouth. <laughs> yeah, true, true. I can see that. So um, just a bit about you. I mean, obviously, um, you're one of uh, Stevenage's great sons of colour, um, along with our Lewis, our Lu yeah. Sir Lewis now. Um, Sir Lewis, Ashley Young. Ashley Young, of course. Roland Butcher. Yeah, right. Roland Butcher. I'm sorry. I'm... Uh, I think the first black person to play cricket for England. Certainly, he played cricket for England. Oh, Roland Butcher. I'm not. I'm not. I don't know my cricket history. I'm afraid. Yeah, that would have been Roland Butcher was in the eighties, I think. Mm. He was at school with my aunt. Um, 
But yeah, so Roland Butcher, um, Giles Torreira, who won the Olivier Award a few years ago, actor, he was in Hamilton. Ah, of course. Um, Stephen is boy. Yeah. And one of the things that intrigues me about, I'm very interested in why so many so many of the people who have reached prominent positions from Stevenage are black because there aren't that many black people there. Certainly <laughs> weren't when I was there. And and so they're and they're so they're all connected. So I I, I think I'm right. Stevenage had two black mayors, I know that, and a black chief of police. One of the mayors, I think, was Ashley Young's godmother. My mum was Giles Torreira's godmother. My brother used to babysit for Giles when he was a baby, but he also used to travel on the train with Lewis Hamilton's dad when Lewis Hamilton was um, go kart. Wow. He was you know, a <laughs> comic because he was really good at go karting. And, um, um, you know, so my brother would chat to him about how his son was doing in the, uh, in the go karting. Lewis Hamilton and Ashley Young were actually at the same school. I think they were in the same year. Uh, but if not, it was only a kind of year or so apart. And and so, so you get to see how small that community is. That kind of, if you didn't know the people, then you were one step removed from, you know, knowing, us all knowing each other. And um, it intrigues me as to why, what it might be about Stevenage that had that, effect you must have a few theories it's a bit of a oh please share them in a moment but let me offer one a little because I'm, I'm from the suburbs of london um the eastern suburbs council estates in the you know like the post-war era built low-rise houses and i think there was something about those i mean we've there's been lots talked about about the bromley contingent you know the, the creative punk culture there's something about being from those peripheral peripheral areas away from the metropolises, and this has been, this is not my theory, but it's been, it's been written a long time before, but there's something about the metropolis just being over the horizon, accessible, but not, you're not of it. You can, you can see it, but you can't access it unless you really put an effort in. There's a curiosity about culture being just over that horizon. And so you go to it and you're drawn from it. You get a perspective on it. And I suppose when you lay the, lay the ethnicity of, of, of your contemporaries and yourself over that, there's yet another complexity there, isn't there? Um, and I wonder what you think about that and what your theories are. Yeah, I mean, London was both close and far away. You know, I think, I mean, you've got fast trains now, but it was usually like an hour away. I mean... Oh, is it now, that far? Is like, it that far? Oh, I didn't... Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's 30 miles, but it was... Um, yeah, in the 70s, it was, uh, <laughs> that was a long way. Yeah, that was, that was longer then than it was now. And you you pass, you know, quite a few towns to get there. So yeah. kind of Potter's Bar and yeah. Wellin and, uh, and so on, Nebworth. You know, London was... It was a day trip. And you might go five or six times a year. And it always felt very, very different. As soon as you landed in King's Cross, you was like, whoa, yeah. this is something else. Yeah, there was something about you were peripheral, but you weren't beyond beyond. It's not like you were in, um, I don't know, you weren't in Peterborough or something. You weren't kind of long way away. You weren't kind of, so you, and everybody in Stevenage, because it was a new town, all of their parents came from London more or less not all of them but a lot of them so there was a london you know i didn't really realize this until i grew kind of grew up why pretty much all of my friends supported tottenham or <laughs> arsenal or west ham um uh and it was it was generally from that part of the world there was not a lot of kind of qpr or um some chelsea but um so it was always there and it was so it was available even if it wasn't kind of immediately accessible. One thing I think is that Stevenage was a new town. It was built same year or kind of, yeah, convened the same year as the NHS, 1948. And it was supposed to, it wasn't just a new town. It was, they had a whole social democratic vision of a new person and just how 
wonderful working class life would be if you had a garden back in front and um, greens on every corner. Yeah, and that you know, in a way, they weren't wrong. Do you know what I mean? It was a real, real paradigm shift from kind of London tenements with the you know outhouses and kind of off and on running water and you know particularly after the war so it was built with this vision in mind not with black people in mind you know that was also the wind rush year it was it wasn't sort of oh maybe you know but but what it meant because it was a kind of a sort of social democratic working class oasis in a way what it meant was by the time i grew up the schools were fine they weren't brilliant but they were far, all of them were good enough. There was no area that you thought, I wouldn't go there. Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, you grew up on a council estate, but the whole of Stevenage was a council estate. It was 100% social housing. And so nurses and teachers would move there for the council housing in the 70s. So there was a real, on my little strip of where I grew up in my street, there were a couple of retired people, there was a family that was unemployed, there was a self-employed guy, there was a kind of carpenter, there was a painter decorator, my mum was a teacher. There was a real range of professions. Everyone was working class, but working class, like there were, <laughs> there were lots of different ways of being working yeah, class. Yeah, of course. No one was like stinking rich and no one kind of went, but so the schools, you know, were a mix and the social areas were and so anyway to get to my point it was new so I think there weren't while institutional racism is a problem all of the institutions were new and they hadn't had a chance for racism to kind of embed nobody could say about anything well we don't do it like that here because there, there was no there before and so there was there was a lot of racism there was a lot of racism a lot of people that moved out of London moved out of London in the 50s and 60s to get away from black people. Yeah. But there, there, there hadn't been the kind of, there hadn't been the time for the institutions to calcify around racism and to say, oh, well, you must be like that. Or you, everybody was an immigrant who was in yeah. Stevenage. You know, they immigrated from West Ham and North London yeah, and East yeah, London and yeah. not London, whatever. That's one, of, that's one thing I think might be true. The other thing I think is that if you, if you're black and you grow up in a place where there aren't a lot of black people, you're forced to navigate and negotiate the white world in a way that you're not. If you grow up around a lot, an awful lot of black people, then you got your people around you. You know, if that's if that's the way it's going to go, and like you don't really. You can't avoid white people completely, but you don't have to engage in the same way. That don't make Lewis Hamilton drive any faster. You know, it doesn't put Shakespeare in um, Giles's heart or, you know, explain why Ashley Young can curl a ball the way that he can. But what it does do is mean that in those moments where they are the only black person, and there are many of those moments. And frankly, at this stage in our development, there isn't much advancement without those moments where you're the only black person in the room because white people have most of the power. Then you, there is a kind of ease of presence. You've been there before and um, you, you have some experience of negotiating it. I mean, you know, both of those things are, are really kind of theories. Then, or th I wouldn't even dignify them. They are as far as I've got in thinking about why this weird thing should be true. Because it is weird. Yeah, yeah. Is there a book in there, Gary? I, I don't think there's even a kind of fully formed thought in there. <laughs> kind of, if, if, I, if I ever felt kind of like more than confident that I wasn't just running my mouth, then I'd like to. I'd, you know... I love that town for what it did for me and for what it aspired to be. And, um, um, you know, my mum died when I was 19 and, you know, all of my family had moved away 
by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I don't get, I don't go there that often, but when I do, you know, it's part of me, it made me. So yeah. um, um, I've, I've got a lot of affection for it. So if there was some way of engaging kind of in a rooted sense intellectually, I, I would, but I haven't, I haven't fully found it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so well, we look forward to maybe that, that flowering at some point. 2012 I landed and I left in August 2015 and had a couple of kids in that time <laughs> um, and um, I was in New York for eight years and Brooklyn and Chicago for four years but I spent a lot of time traveling around and it was this particularly before I had a child because then I had to do a lot less traveling but this I'd see something like a, a book launch for uh, evangelical series called Left Behind that was outselling most books, but that if you were kind of liberal and lived in New York, you, had, you hadn't heard of. And there'd be a book launch in Spartanburg, South Carolina. 
And I could say to the Guardian, look, there's this book launch. I was thinking, and they'd be like, yeah, go, go, go. You know, Amazing. So just this, um, I had the interest and the means. You know, I traveled all the way up the US-Mexican border from Brownsville, Texas to San Diego, sort of drove all the way, talking to people along the way. Or uh, I drove from Boston, Kerry's home, to Midland, Texas, George Bush's during the 2004 election, stopping along the way, asking people about the election. I spent a month in a small town in Indiana, a month in a small town in Wisconsin, a month in a small town in, in Virginia, sort of getting the temperature. So I had an absolute ball, and I really felt like I grew during that time. I mean, it was a particular time in, you know, that would have been, I, I, I arrived... 33 and left it you know when i was 45 so it's a particular time in your professional life anyway and and to get to your point yes it was always coming this wasn't trump was a logical conclusion i remember in being there in february 2003 and being this there being this pro-war demonstration in new york and the chant was we gave peace a chance and we got 9-11. Wow. And I was like, that is so weird. What? When did you give peace a chance? What are you even talking about? And um, uh, the election in 2004 where kind of CBS tried to look up George Bush's um, Vietnam War deferment and they were basically just shut out of the whole thing. People lost their jobs. This kind of so this thing about kind of fake news and denial and and the way that the New York Times and the Washington Post nearly every single major newspaper wrote an apology to their readers about their coverage of the Iraq War that the kind of fake news thing didn't come just from people being barking mad the news media was not doing its job and once again with the economic crisis where the you know everything's fine nothing to see here you know all the experts did not do a good job and just the sort of rank racism that and xenophobia that you would see not just the tea party but the uh, the minutemen who um were like vigilantes who patrolled the border and were trying to kind of catch undocumented migrants as they came through that all of the ingredients for this moment were kind of you know were, were were there even the thing now where the right wing are um the ultra right really it's a big section now i've i'm now rounding on fox news i remember interviewing um this group of people in uh, lexington kentucky group of tea party people and saying to them, you know, so what TV do you watch? And they, and the only channel they watched was Fox. And they, and I said, do you trust it? And they said, it's better than the rest, but it's still mainstream. So even when Fox was kind of breathing fire and just kind of spewing light, they were still, you just couldn't get crazy enough for them. And I remember having a revelation at a certain point that, kind of oh this is a settler state this is a settler state and um even though this isn't the only thing that was going on of course and it was a revelation it was a, a kind of rally and thinking they passed civil rights legislation they did do that and there's a significant group of people who are still mad about that and have not been acculturated to that and uh, this is actually a lot more like South Africa, which is where I got my first break in at The Guardian. This is much more like South Africa in some ways than it is like France or Germany. So what do you think comes next for America? I don't know. I don't think it bodes well, the moment that we're in now. Forget Trump for a moment. You have Trumpism, whoever takes that over, that kind of... Mm, sort of toxic mix of kind of racial grievance and authoritarianism and sort of lies and xenophobia. 
indifference really to democratic norms, uh, hostility to judiciary, media, anybody who gets in their way, reality. My worry is that the opposition to that that keeps emerging is insufficient. So, you know, Biden, well, there's nothing in his history, or precious little in his history, to suggest that he's going to do anything transformative. If you look at who he's appointed, he's appointed... Obama appointed people either from the Clinton administration or the Bush administration, uh, even though he stood on change. Biden is now appointing people from the Obama administration. And that there is a real... Underneath all of the kind of racially motivated toxicity, there is a real desire for something to change. You know, like, wages have been stagnant since 1970. And America more than, certainly more than Britain, but most other places, there's this notion that each year will be better than the rest, that, you know, the next generation, your kids will do better than you. That You know, in, in, in Britain there is more of a sense of kind of just like everything's a bit shit. Do you know what I mean? Our best days are behind us. It doesn't mean that people aren't aspirant or ambitious, but there is a kind of like eye-rolling, uh, yeah, fucking figures. Whereas in, in America, there wasn't, there was this real genuine investment in a notion of progress. It's a very specific notion of progress, but still progress. And now people's lives have stalled. Like, social mobility is worse there, or was worse there than it was here. It's calcified. Mm. College is just unaffordable. Houses, buying a house feels like you know, interest rates are really low. After the last economic crisis, people mm. are kind of a little bit wary. All of those, all those pillars of, for want of a better word, the American dream, but certainly the notion that you could get on, have kind of gone. Mm. And, or, are rotting. And the prize goes to whoever promises to do something about that. And in a way, Trump in 2016, he only narrowly won, but he gave a more convincing promise. I'm going to shake shit up. Mm. Things are going to be different if I win. You know, the Make America Great Again, a lot of that is about nostalgia, racism, all of that. But a lot of it is about those things that, you know, I refer to when I talk about Ella Jake, a certain amount of certainty and dignity and kind of it's gone. Always going. Mm. And so when when Hillary said America's already great, I thought people were like, well, not for me. And, you, you know, and um, <laughs> when Biden promises to get things back to normal, it's not clear that he understands that it was the normal that produced Trump. Yeah. Like, Trump came out of that normal. So, actually, mm. whatever the offer is, has to be transformative. It can't be tinkering. We, we're beyond that. And the reason I'm not hopeful is because it looks like maybe the Democrats won't get the Senate. There's a limit to what, even if he was going to pursue a transformative agenda there's a limit to what would get through and there's no indication that he will anyway and so in four years time people are gonna a lot of people are gonna say well nothing happened and it might be trump it might be some other orange monster comes up and mm. promises the moon and people think well fuck it i'll go for that yeah i might as well well i mean your um your book uh that reference a quite provocative title about the death of America. I mean, I wonder if, if you still feel that that's an approaching or potential reality. No, I mean, it's got a huge, you know, it's got a huge military. It's, um, no, I don't think that, but I, I do think that kind of, um, it seriously runs the risk of decay, of kind of rotting from the inside out. And failing to address it, you know, before it's too late. Because each, with each passing year, the medicine gets harder and harder to swallow. The demands get bigger and bigger, and the need for transformation gets bigger and bigger. Uh, I mean, there are heartening things. 
Black Lives Matter protest, that was really heartening. For me, the fact that kind of people there are talking about socialism, but, you know, Bernie Graham, uh, but not Bernie, Bernie, Graham, Graham. Bernie Saunders. <laughs> I say that all the time, <laughs> Bernie. <laughs> Who would have imagined, you know, this cranky Jewish center from Vermont with kind of, you know, one line really, the millionaires and the billionaires and the kind of, but that, you know, he would be the focal point for this kind of energy where for a moment it looked like he really would be the nominee. So it's not like nothing's happening, but it doesn't look like it's happening quickly enough. No. So uh, let's bring it back to, back, back to the present here and now for you. Um, you've moved back to London, you're here in Hackney, you're, you're, you've got an academic post. What gives you, what gets you up in the morning? Keep doing what you're doing. You've got a family, obviously. Is there a, is there a glimpse that, is there something that you can glimpse from where you are now that is informed by that kind of sense that you grew up with of there is a way to be, to live justly and to, 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 to promote social justice. Do you still have that glimpse now and then? Oh yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, I mean, the honest answer to the question is my kids get me up in the morning. <laughs> it's like, I'm actually the first person up in the house, but like, they ain't getting fed unless I get out. But yeah, I feel, well, one of the things that gets me up is that kind of, even when I've got a lot of work on, it's all work that I like doing. So I'm never really bored. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm never, um, there are books I like reading, there are kind of articles I want to write, even if I don't want to write it right then, you know, um, <laughs> um, there, you know, there are conversations like this, there are meetings, so, you know, I feel quite blessed in that regard, and that kind of, um, so, and um, one of the things I was trying to get over in that last column was, this will sound hokey, really, but I'm a product. I'm, I'm a product of a hopeful disposition. There's no, you don't look at a four-year-old black kid in Stevenage with a single mum and two older brothers and think, you're going to have a life like the life that I had. And it, what, there was a sense of, of hope in my mum that she passed down to me and, um, uh, and you know, and if you go back farther to my mum's mum who cut cane in uh, Barbados and finished school when she was 14, um, deeply religious, and, you know, when she came to stay, she would be kind of planting things in the garden. So, like, if things get hard, you can always go to the garden and you can always pick a bit of fruit. You know, this is when she stayed with my brother in Stevenage, she was doing that, you know, my granny. So that so, so then, yeah. You trace that to me. Then, how could you not be hopeful? Do you know what I mean? Like mm. in terms of like, what might might be possible? And I'm not deluded that it's possible for me. It's not been possible for a lot of other people. Mm. But for me, then I feel that I was kind of born in a and I've been raised in a kind of hopeful mindset, and. I think that chimes with my politics, which is like, <laughs> despite everything, always <laughs> kind of hopeful in people. You know, I, I I grew up with a lot of people who were good people and who I loved dearly and who voted Tory or who, well, you know, and so I kind of, I do one of the things that kind of fuels my journalism is trying to understand why people do what they do rather than writing them off. If that's true, if it's Brexit or Trump or any of that kind of, there is a sort of liberal mindset that just says they're all stupid or they're all racist or mm. they're all this or they're all that. And it's like, well, that can't be, that can't be right. Um, even if I have very, very firm ideas myself about what I think is right, which would completely clash with a lot of those people, I still kind of want to know what motivates them and what kind of that's, you know, that's one of the things that kind of gets me up in the morning. Um, and um, 
not a big one for human nature in a way, but I just, yeah, I believe that kind of most people are fundamentally decent somewhere. <laughs> and that may not translate into their politics or into their electoral choices, but, um, but that's been, you know, that's my, that's my truth, if you like, that most people are fundamentally decent. And I'm 51, so I don't know that that, that belief, even if it is deluded, I'm probably stuck with it now. Uh, and that makes me hopeful, you know. Amen to that. Sounds good. Well, that's beautiful. That's a, that sounds like a beautiful way to sort of end the main line of our discussion. I could talk forever. We've already been going 55 minutes and uh, my editor's going to be going crazy at me for rabbiting on so long. But I, I'm really enjoying the conversation. I would love to um, ask you, we'll do a little stock thing at the end of these podcasts. I'm going to ask you about an album, a film and an object. What would it be? Let's talk about an album. I'd be interested in what music turned you on the most and continues to. Albums kind of interesting because it's been so long since I've listened to music in terms of albums as opposed to kind of single, yes, as opposed to single records. I guess, well, this would be weird, but it might it might well be um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel actually, uh, which is my mum used to play that on a loop, and when we really pissed her off or when she was really upset or angry, she would run up Bridge Over Troubled Waters to like maximum volume. And and because she was either angry at us or just fucking angry, you couldn't say, Mom, will you turn that down? Because <laughs> they were like, you were just going to get shit down here. And... Um, and so, while they're not, it's not kind of music that I listen to a lot now. It is music that's kind of it is an album that stayed with me and would carry a lot of memories. It's really funny. I asked that exact same question to Billy Bragg a couple of months ago, and he said almost exactly the same thing. Really? <laughs> yeah. It comes up a lot that that album and that tune. Bridge over troubled water. Is that a, is that an original? Is that an original spiritual, or did got Simon and Garfunkel write that? Because obviously, you know, like no one sung it like Aretha, right? I mean, where does yeah. that come from? I'd be interested. I, I mean, think of the the main refrain, like a bridge over troubled waters. I will lay you down. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm sure that's a spiritual. I mean, oh, interesting. Maybe they maybe they just took that and wrote a pop song out of it. But what a pop song, yeah. true. I mean, I totally get that. Totally get that. It doesn't surprise yeah. me at all. I mean, there's it, powerful music. Yeah. Then, um... How about a book? What's a book uh, that's a companion for you? That's a good one. Yeah, and that's... That's probably Catcher in the Rye. That's, you know, that's one of the books that I kind of go back to. And it... Once again, these things are partly about memory and... I remember reading it and feeling like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's a kind of 15-year-old git, probably, um, <laughs> but feeling kind of, um, did someone finally kind of got, you know, really identifying with, sort of not really getting the book. I didn't realise until I read it maybe the third time that Holden Caulfield was actually mad, that he was, you know, suffering a mental health crisis, so I didn't fully understand it. But just the way he, you know, the way he calls everybody phonies and sort of rolls around. And I mean, I'm no, I was nothing like him. You know, it wasn't that I, it wasn't so much that I saw myself in him as a person, but that his, just his kind of dismissiveness and his kind of reflections and his kind of, um, I didn't have a younger sibling, but his relationship with Phoebe Oh yeah, that, that I mean that awkwardness, you know, when he goes and meets those girls from the bridge and tunnel out in that bar at night, the yeah. awkwardness and the arrogance completely unearned. Yeah. It's funny, I I read that book, you know, when I was about eighteen, it's one of the first proper works of literature I probably read. And I didn't get it at all and I didn't like it, I didn't like him. And I read it for only the second time about three years ago and I was like, Oh my god. I felt completely different about the book. 
completely different about Caulfield. And what I felt for him was compassion. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. I must have been so like that in many ways at the time that I couldn't see it. <laughs> it's interesting. Our, our, yeah. uh, it's like music, books, any work of art changes over time. You know, it sort of it, it ripens or withers on the vine compared to what point in your life you you reach up and grab it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it, exactly. Yeah, it's a kind of. Um, I mean, it, you know, we evolve, and the. I'm sorry, I regret. I mean, the book is a kind of fixed thing, but we keep, you know, evolve and revolve around it, and so we're, you know, we're seeing some kind of different bit in it. And for a film, and this has been, um, <laughs> one of the reasons why this film remains I remained attached to this film I think is in no small part because um, I can't get it on Netflix or Amazon so I can't see it again and see it again and get bored with it but it's Love Jones which is a film um, set in Chicago mostly and it's um, it's a love story between uh, among black beatniks and so, beatniks, it's the wrong phrase, because they're, they're bohos, really. They're black bohemians. So they're not, beatniks are just 60s, whereas this is very much 90s or noughties. And they are, they're doing spoken word. The woman's a photographer. The guy is a, a, an author. And they are sort of living in this almost hermetically sealed, intellectual black landscape in which they're kind of quoting George Bernard Shaw and kind of, you know, they are very flamboyant, sort of demonstrative clever people. And um, just in terms of the love story bit is kind of less interesting for me in this film, but just the notion that such a space could exist, that I might occupy it um, with other like-minded people, that kind of um, the, the kind of the picking and choosing of you know I studied French and Russian I like you know I'm into the Harlem Renaissance I you know I quite like hip hop m music um, or dance dance music really from that from the kind of late eighties early nineties. And like everybody, I'm a collection of a range of influences and and there's something about seeing that and seeing yourself in there because, not because I have the same range of influences, but a, a similar level of eclecticism, I guess, that I, I really love that. And so... And it's a uh, film, it's not a documentary, it's a story. And so rare, um, to, see, that, so rare to see that represented in that way. In 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 yeah, cinema, right? Uh, yeah, in a in a deliberate but not completely self-conscious way. It's not a film that's saying, "See, black people have an intellectual life too," or you know. So I'm glad for the love. I mean, there is a story there. It's just the setting is, um, and then it's you know it involves a city that I'm aware of and all that. So it was kind of like I saw it when I was must have been about 28, 29. Hadn't published a book, not long started as a Guardian, was really aspiring, as I still do, to a kind of an intellectual life that, you know, and what it might look like. Mm. And um, this was, you know, really uh, crucial to that. Actually, it was a bit, it was later than that, but still, it was later than that. I was thinking of a different film. But it's to... still just kind of. You know, I have to look it up. And you mentioned football. You uh, are you Spurs, Tottenham, West Ham. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I reckon. I reckon Arsenal. Celtic. <laughs> See, I told you. The time in Scotland, or is it? Does it predate that? Yeah, I grew up in. When I grew up in Stevenage, Stevenage didn't have a football team. Liverpool were doing so you you know you catch as catch can so I started supporting Liverpool 
and then as I kind of just I just kind of fell away from it just fell away from taking any notice and then when I got to Edinburgh there was just quite a lot of crossover between the Labour Club and the Celtic Supporters Club and um, uh, and they had kind of politics that I quite liked and um, you know the people from the Celtic Supporters Club you know they would suggest books that you might read and they might be about racism or they might be about Ireland or they wow. might be about Scotland but they were kind of I, I liked them interesting and, uh, interesting to... interesting Celtic not Hibernian yeah well well, you know what that's that is um, Hibs would have been more logical <laughs> and it was a Celtic supporters club that overlapped with a Labour club in a way that Hibs didn't yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. in the same way that I just picked Stevenage out of, uh, picked Liverpool kind of out of a hat the hat where they were winning all the time. Something, uh, there was a proximity to set. It wasn't any logic. It wasn't like, I don't think when I got into it, I necessarily even knew that they played in Glasgow. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't an intelligent, it was a, it was a drift towards. What years were you in Edinburgh, Gary? 87 to 92. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I lived there for a year uh, in 90... Was it ninety four? I moved up there to. Uh, it was a it was a mistake. I, I came back to London after doing some travelling, and my girlfriend had moved there to study, and I moved up there for a year. I had a very strange year. Um, yeah, very strange. Did you like it? I I loved the you know there was a sense of um, you know Edinburgh is sort of this visually amazing, right? You know, like the kind of the atmosphere and the 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 weather was very dreary. I mean, I I swear I remember about three sunny days in the whole year I was there. I mean, the weather was atrocious, wasn't it? You know, I was working in a bar and I was signing I was signing on the dole, working in a bar. You know, and it was a, it's just a strange experience for me. I felt very displaced. How was it for you? I loved it. I thought it was beautiful, and for all of the wonderful things that I do think about Stephen, it's not beautiful. And so, you know, Edinburgh was grand and old and, you know, I remember walking across George IV Bridge and seeing Arthur's Seat, you know, just thinking, God, it's just not fair. You've got a bloody castle up there, you've, mm -hmm. got, a, you've got a palace down there and you've got a huge hill in the middle. Like, it just kind of kept on coming. Um, so I thought it was beautiful and accessible, small enough. Big enough that things came there. A, a great, a great place there. to be reading Dostoevsky, I imagine. In in the yeah, in, well, exactly. In the original. Early dark nights. But it's also true that my in at the end of my first year, my mum died there. Not there, but she died. Yeah, while you there. And so, I did spend the next. Of the next four years, one of them I was in Russia and France because I studied French and Russian. And the next two years was this process of, after my mum died, of, I would have felt displaced anywhere and I happened to be mm. there. And of kind of wading through grief and a, a, a displacement in order to find some other sort of you know, safe ground, really. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. So I was kind of, I was there and not there all at the same time. Mm. And um, and that always, whenever I go back, I've got a godson, well, he lives in Glasgow now, but his dad's a good friend and he lives in Edinburgh. Whenever I go back, there is always something, mm. something coming back wistful and energetic about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a nice, nice round point. It's been great to talk, Gary. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Joining the Dots. I've been Mike Fordham. This is a podcast from the makers of Huck Magazine. We hope you enjoyed. If you did, please tell people about it, share it, download it, comment and subscribe. Thanks to everyone involved in this podcast. Thanks to all the crew at Huck Magazine and TCO London. Thanks to Vince. Thanks to Sonic Alchemist Rob Taliasin Owen. Stay tuned for more conversations across culture. 
see you on the other side. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.